Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. There is a great debate going on across this country about the use of cannabis. Is it harmful or is it not? Does it lead to heroin or does it not? I can tell you with certainty that in fact it does. All kinds of people use it. I know a couple of cabinet ministers, other politicians, executive assistants, all kinds of professional people who use it or have used it. Uh, we feel that uh, marijuana kills ambition, it kills the, uh, the Puritan ethic, the desire to work, the desire to progress. And and where do you stand with the law? Then you can get up to life imprisonment in Canada. We will uh, certainly wait for the final report of the Ladane Commission before making a final decision on that. And uh, that is to say that there has been no decision made yet uh, to legalize uh, marijuana. And uh, the government has still that decision ahead of it. So that was old tape of Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau back from when he tried and failed to legalize marijuana. Today on the show, something different. We're going to bring you a story about the Canadian government growing its own super potent weed and funding an absurd, arguably abusive experiment in which women were paid to voluntarily surrender their freedom, live in a guarded facility among mental patients, 
smoke intense amounts of weed, and weave macrame belts. This 1972 experiment was held in downtown Toronto, in a facility that doesn't exist anymore. And after it was conducted, the whole thing vanished like Brigadoon, without a trace, and became the stuff of stoner legend. That is, until a journalist from the Toronto Star got a tip and dug into it. Her reporting has now been turned into a feature film called The Marijuana Conspiracy. Today you will hear little bits from that film, but mostly, you will hear the whole story. Told by reporter Diana Zamaslich and by Doreen Brown, a woman who back in 1972 was one of the marijuana experiment's actual test subjects. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Lindsay Stakalko, Stephanie Williams, Arnab Majumder, Jenna Megweed, Anatacha Wilkes, James Hiet, Kate Young, and Allison. Hi, I'm Allison, and I support Canada Land because it tells me things I didn't already know, and it allows me to diversify my media intake, which I think is really important. My name is Diana Zlamaslich, and I'm a reporter with the Toronto Star. Back in 2012-ish, I got an email in my inbox from Doreen Brown, and it said, I was part of this very interesting experiment back in the 1970s. I've been trying to find out what happened to the study, haven't been able to find any trace of it. Can you help? She made some reference to marijuana, and I thought, okay, this is interesting. My name's Doreen Brown. In 1972, I was uh, 21, and uh, I heard about a marijuana experiment uh, that was going to happen. It was on, uh, I think it was Chum FM, and uh, word of mouth as well, but it definitely was on the radio. And I was working at Eaton's, actually, downtown Toronto, uh, doing admin stuff. It was something like, uh, smoke weed, get paid for it. Something along that line. The young women saw these ads and thought, this is amazing. Uh, it's a no-brainer. Pretty mellow yellow man. <laughs> I can't believe we get to smoke this shit and not get busted. Ooh, <sighs> crazy. At that time, I wasn't too happy going through a lot of things. My mother died when I was 14, and uh, at that time, unlike today, there was you didn't talk about it. It was just like it didn't happen, and you move on. So there was a, a lot of things I was dealing with, but really didn't understand or process at the time. So I was in um, a very unhappy state on the inside. You wouldn't have known it on the outside. And I guess I had a who cares what happens to me attitude. And um, I moved out on my own downtown Toronto. I was 17 and um, just took any job I could, not knowing what I was going to do with my life. Wasn't too happy. I did try a few different drugs, never really anything heavy. But at that time, you know, we had Yorkville going on. It was the, the late 60s, early 70s. And I just did things. Never missed a day of work, though, but I did, you know, 
try some acid, mescaline, different things like that. I did smoke a bit of marijuana um, and I thought, hey, I have nothing to lose. Maybe I can find myself by escaping, doing something different. I wanted a change, wanted to maybe get some introspective, um, my head in a different place. And I thought, okay, I'm going to apply. I've got nothing to lose. It starts with me, I think, trying to figure out what she was talking about. She had some details about the facility. Um, I, I knew that uh, there was a place that she went to, um, a hospital that in the 1970s was called the Addiction Research Foundation at Bloor and Spadina. I had tracked down enough sources to verify that it was real and that it was a really incredible story. There was this incredible experiment involving a group of 20 women, the first of its kind in Canada, that took place in downtown Toronto in this nondescript building. And uh, for 98 days, these women were essentially held captive in this building where they were studied every movement that they made. And the whole point of what they, um, the point of the experiment was to see whether, whether people who got high could also be productive members of the economy. So that's what I did. Went away for three months. I, I told my dad, I said, bye dad, I won't see you for 98 days. Can't call you. Uh, he said, where are you going? I said, a marijuana experiment. I said, are you crazy? I said, probably, but I'm going. Anyway, so I, I went into this. Um, no idea what would happen. Um, they, there were 20 women that applied, got in out of a few thousand women. Ten, ten women were part of the smokers group, and they had to smoke increasingly high doses of pot given to them uh, by the scientists. And they would do it in this sort of lounge setting. It was a hospital corridor, which we turned into a hippie den. We had them take the bed frames away, put mattresses on the floor, ordered uh, all kinds of things, rock albums alcohol a woman in there was a bartender so we ordered alcohol um we ordered chalk there was an artist in there she did some murals on the wall and it looked like a real hippie den in about a week It was fun and games at the beginning, smoking marijuana legally. We could buy it whenever we wanted to as well. It was uh, 50 cents a joint to buy it. And uh, we weaved belts for money, $2.50 a belt. And what they were doing, they were measuring productivity and smoking weed. There was a, uh, a daily toke time, a nightly toke time where they had to gather around and the researchers would come out with the tokes on a tray and give them a stronger and stronger amounts of pot. And during the day when they weren't smoking, they had to see how many belts they could weave. And for each belt that they wove correctly, because they were all assessed for quality, um, it had to contain at least two colors and measure 132 centimeters in length. And for each of these um, approved belts, they received $2.50. And that was an incentive for a lot of the women to join this experiment. It was a way out to try to earn a little bit of cash, to pay off student debts, to travel. It was a lot of belts. Like every, it was, it was, there was no limit on how many 
you could produce. They would pay you for what you did. I believe it was uh, purple, and it was made on what I think was called a Guatemalan backstrap loom. <laughs> Why did it happen? Okay, that's a good question. No, it's not a silly question, because the late 1960s and the early 1970s, Canada was in a full-blown panic about drugs. Uh, they thought that Canada's youth were, in, were going to be destroyed by pot and LSD and, and other substances. And so there was actually a federal commission that looked at this subject. Part of the problem, too, was that some of the, the federal and provincial politicians' kids were starting to get in trouble for pot possession, pot smoking, and it was messing up their chances of going to their Ivy League schools. And so they thought, maybe we should decriminalize pot possession. And so that led to a, a, a four-year commission called the Ladane Commission in Canada. At the time, uh, Pierre Trudeau, who was our prime minister, started staging public hearings across the country on this issue. His government hounded out rich grants for new cannabis research, and they, uh, they launched something, a, a national commission on the issue. In contrast, though, the conservative premier at the time, John Roberts, would have basically none of this. And so this is when a young British psychologist ad- enters the picture, and his name was C.G., the letters CG, which I don't know what they ever stood for. It was, it was always just CG, super friendly guy, by all accounts, mop of thick brown hair, kind of swooped over one eye and nearly hit his shoulders. He blended well with the alternative culture at the time. People unofficially called him Bill, and his last name was Miles. I heard you were a smartass, but very good at what you do. I'm looking for a young researcher who can blend in with counterculture, speak their lingo, an insider. You mean ride them out? We'd like to do a study on marijuana users and the disastrous effect they're having on our youth, making them counterproductive, turning them onto heroin. You know that pansy Trudeau who's got a secret agenda to legalize this shit. Right. And I'm, I'm guessing that's not your agenda. And so when... He heard that this money was being offered by the federal government to conduct research. He made a pitch and he wanted to study for the first time anywhere in the world. Um, Miles wanted to launch human experiments using cannabis, which had never been done. So that's what I did. Um, as it went on, uh, the uh, weed got a lot stronger and it wasn't fun anymore. Many of them didn't realize that it wouldn't be as lighthearted as it initially seemed. Um, the idea of getting to smoke pot, live for free, essentially, with a bunch of girls uh, your age in their early 20s, there was a bit of a dark side to the experiment too, as, as Doreen would find out. We had to smoke every night in the lounge at, I think it was eight o'clock, and they brought the uh, weed to you on little restaurant trays that they'd give your check on. And we had to smoke two joints by ourselves. We couldn't pass it around, and they even checked the roach to make sure we smoked it right down. So the Canadian government grew its own. They had a massive field uh, called the Central Experimental Farm outside of the Ottawa area, where they grew and tested more than 300 varieties of pot guarded by barbed wire and run by university students. 
Some of the students who worked there and sampled from the field told me that they smoked the marijuana and they described it as the strongest seeds in the world. A health official at the time boasted that the government's crop yielded a potency three times stronger than what was available on the street. And we were watched continually 24-7 and wrote down what we were doing at the time. If we were in the shower, whatever, every, I think it was every half hour. And we couldn't go out, couldn't have any phone calls, and uh, we had no contact with the outside world at all. And then the other two quarters were drug addicts, uh, people with psychiatric problems, I guess. And there was, we had no contact except through the windows with the other groups of people. So there were men running the experiment and some women, but they had no interaction with the outside world. Like for the first, in, uh, for the first couple of days, it was, or weeks, it was this hedonistic retreat, except they were not even allowed to get sunshine outside. No, no walks, um, no leaving the building, but they did have an interaction <laughs> or some interaction with men, specifically men who were living um, in a psychiatric ward, <laughs> neighboring, uh, neighboring their hospital. These men were in the forensic psych psychiatric unit at the Clark Institute, which was next door, and the women had a window view to their locked ward. And the women would write these friendly short messages on these placards, and then they flashed their signs through the large windows that faced that faced the men in their courtyard. Nudity was pretty common because the girls had really nothing to do and they didn't really think much about walking around naked. I think it was also an attempt to to try to get a reaction from some of the people who were within the uh, the hospital, but you know, not the other subjects. They wanted the they wanted the experimenters to just acknowledge them in some way. Now we did have a lot of physical and psychological tests. We had continual blood tests, urine tests. Actually, the blood tests, we had so many that they gave us a letter for track marks in our arms when we left, in case we were stopped by the police or something. And um, urine tests, we had to see the psychiatrist. And that was continual throughout the whole thing. I just need some space. Maybe even a walk in the daylight. Even prisoners get an hour in the yard. I can't do that. You know what you signed up for, Janice. You have to exist in the micro-community, no outside interaction. They would see these staff that were working alongside of them. There were so many people just like looming um, against the walls, taking notes, uh, taking their blood, taking their urine samples. But these people weren't interacting with them. And then at some point that, that lack of interaction started to wear on them um, and became almost like a psychological torment. Uh, it, it had that effect where they were just like, speak to me already, like acknowledge my existence. It was sort of maddening that these people were just pretending to not be there, but they were there, um, which uh, I don't know, that just to me sounds like a bit of a nightmare. So instead of feeling like they were in a hospital, they felt like sort of, um, especially as, as the time went on, like they were in a zoo almost. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody 
half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. I really believe they were hoping that the smoking side would not be productive or as productive as the non-smoking side. It was the effect of smoking weed continually. I guess the test was how many, the speed was one issue because what the incentive was for each belt that you made, um, you would be paid. So did people who got super high, were they still motivated? Was that still, uh, you know, uh, an incentive for them to, to be productive? So their productivity must be going down. Actually, the physiological results show their motor dexterity and neurotransmitters are slowing down. So they're becoming less productive than the control group. Depends on the individuals in both groups. I mean, they're getting better at their craft, and some are even waking up earlier to counter the side effects. They're more motivated by the money, despite being handicapped. And the workmanship is impressive. It's far better than when they started. This is not what the Foundation expected. I could confirm from some of the women that I spoke with, yes. Um, one of them... Uh, who still lives in Toronto. She went on to work in the film industry and she went in there on a mission and her mission was to make money because she wanted to pay off debt and travel. And uh, she never lost sight of that mission no matter how high she got. And she came out with a boatload of cash. The the girls, some of them mentioned after the fact that uh, a Brinks truck pulled up on their last day outside of the hospital and that was their payday. And if you did leave earlier, they took away, I don't know if it was 50% of the money that you made in there. So there was a real incentive to stay to the end. As time went on, the isolation too it was definitely a factor in this whole thing. Um, because no one's going to sit and smoke weed every night at that time. And you can't go out. The isolation definitely was a factor. But when the weed, when the THC was increased, Absolutely. It became 
at least for me, and I know for a lot of the other women, it was pure drudgery. They said by halfway through the experiment, they were asking them to just take it away. Um, some tried to get doctor's notes to get out of their nightly 815 toke, saying they felt too sick to smoke. Um, one woman said she felt comatose, uh, that it became torture. Uh, one woman who they called Misty, she quit before the experiment was over, just couldn't take it. She withdrew. They said she went into this cocoon and broke down. And I mean, there were really few protections in place for the, the test subjects at that time. And it, it became depressing after a while. For me, yes. <laughs> to this day, 49 years later, I may have had a, a few tokes over 49 years, maybe equivalent to two joints at the most, maybe one. And no, I, it doesn't appeal to me at all. Really, I basically came out with the $250. And then we just basically went our separate ways, never saw them again. You know what sucks the most? As rank as it is in here, it's the closest that I've ever come to having a family. To get out, it was like you're back. Maybe it's like being incarcerated or something. You're back out in society. Wow, there's life going on out here. And I found that really hard. Just like I said, get, going on a subway it, it, with all these people and being being with a lot of people. I also had to find a job, a place to live. So kind of reality hit me big time then. And um, I, I do believe that they did not get the results that they wanted and therefore they scrapped the results. We never found out the results, ever. I really believe they were hoping that the smoking side would not be productive or as productive as the non-smoking side. They had so much money to study this issue. And when I uh, started doing the research on this project, one of the guys that I talked with was uh, Ralph Miller. He was... Uh, a young researcher um, born in Detroit who studied at McMaster. So he was handpicked to lead this Ladane Commission for the federal government uh, on the question of whether pot should be decriminalized. And he was just such an interesting character. And he, he showed up with this giant afro, knowing that they would probably want someone with an alternative bent uh, to, to lead this project. He ended up overseeing 120, 120 research projects that looked at the physiological, psychological, and behavioral effects of pot and other illegal drugs. And uh, he was just really fascinating. And he talked about how in the 1970s, uh, early 70s, prior, just prior to the women's experiment, and he said, we got permission to use the RCMP airport at Rockcliffe. We wanted to see how fast donors could drive around, what they would run over, if they could park. That's where the first driving studies were done. He said, we tested marijuana and alcohol on runways where they, that they weren't using at the time. And then three months later, they had a meeting with the RCMP officers because there was supposedly at the time, all of this evidence from the RCMP that uh, showed marijuana, a, crime, a connection between marijuana and crime. And the, the RCMP had no stats to produce on that. That meeting was their sort of launching point into a, 
the full volume of like four years of, of studies that ultimately really didn't go anywhere because the issue was just sort of shelved. But Ralph Miller, who led that Ladane Commission, he's, he lamented to me that, you know, it's He's got all of this information and so much of it, so the results of all of these studies that they performed, 120 are sitting in national archives. You do feel a bit ripped off. You feel like uh, taken advantage of, even though you went into it voluntarily. But it, still, you know, they did say we would get the results. We never did. You know, we were used for 98 days, kind of harsh uh, situation and uh, never got results. We, we never even had a follow-up when we got out. What experiment would do that? When we left, it was goodbye, see ya, and never followed up physically, mentally, nothing. It was like it never happened. I did go down to Addiction Research Foundation a few times, left my phone number. I would ask about the experiment, the results, and it was like it never happened. Tried to phone different people. It was like the, the whole thing never happened. I mean, over the years, I have told people, and uh, they couldn't even believe it. They went, what? They've never heard, most people never even heard of it. And they said, you got to be kidding. I ended up talking subsequently with a professor uh, in BC. We talked about the ethics of this experiment. He said, I'm not really sure what anyone would expect from exposing people to 98 days of cannabis use and what one would try to answer other than why did no one get killed? I think the study might have supported legalizing marijuana. That's why it didn't come out. I don't know. It leaves you with a lot of questions. I guess we'll never know. No one will ever know. I guess about uh, six, seven years ago, I just sat down one night and I thought, okay, I started thinking about it and wrote uh, two or three pages, sent it to some media people in Toronto. And then uh, Diana from the Star called me the, the very next morning and came to Cambridge to see me and she did the article. But there is a postscript to this story. I found the results, but they were never published in Canada and they weren't digitized at the time of uh, the Star publishing the story. They ended up in a Wisconsin University Journal oddly, like many, many, many years after the study had ended. It said that you can smoke pot, a lot of it, and still be productive. I think the uh, experiment for me, it was probably a, a catalyst to make some changes in my life. And I did uh, go to therapy, pretty open about that, and um, went on to university and just uh, became a happier person. So maybe for me it was, you know, a positive thing a year or two later. I was just struck by the, the involvement of everybody poured everything that they had into this thing for 98 days doing something completely original. Um, nobody had ever done this in the world and uh, there was a tremendous amount of emotional energy and money and time invested and to make it all disappear I just thought it, it seemed it seemed very wrong and I wanted to do something to bring it to light and to, to make the women and to some degree, even the staff who worked on the experiment feel like that, you know, this time mattered. And I think it does.
That's your Canada Land episode. If you like the show, I think you should support it and get our ad-free feed and bonus content. And it has never been cheaper. And this is a limited time offer, a buck a month for your first three months. Go to canadaland.com slash join or just click the link on the show notes and you'll see that the sign up is very simple and actually kind of fun. This is how we are saying thank you this year. Go do it. Thank you. You can email me about anything. Uh, I'm at jesse at canadaland.com and I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com and we are firing on all cylinders. There's a new season of Commons out. The first episode is fantastic about real estate and our new politics show, The Backbench, launches this week. If you were subscribed to Oppo, you're already subscribed. Look out for it. If you're not, go search for The Backbench right now. We think you're going to like this show. Jeremy Kessler produced this episode. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support it.